Hello students and welcome to Class of X, the free internet course on how to read and enjoy the X-Men comics better. I'm your teacher and host, John Reisinger, and today I'm joined by ex-comic book fan and internet personality, Jeff Ramsey, and today we're talking about Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> Hello, John, and can I say that is, a, that is an adorable little intro you've got going on there. I love it. <laughs> You know what? No one's com commented on it. I appreciate that. Are you that. serious? No, I feel like I am. I feel like I'm sitting in class, uh, nervous as can be, on the first day <laughs> at uh, at the school for gifted youngsters. And yeah, uh, yeah. no, it is great, great table setting. Well, I I put a lot of thought into it, and I appreciate it because I think I think a good intro to a podcast should be repeatable every time, and people should feel like it's the it's the start of something they enjoy. I uh, I might hire you to have that conversation with a couple of guys I work with on a on a different podcast because they could, they could use that tutelage I think. Ah, uh, I'm sure you work with just professional, <laughs> serious podcasters who bring their A game every single time. Well, they bring something. That's that's for sure. But <laughs> they bring that's that's not, not what this podcast. Their A game, about. but a game. They bring, they bring a, a game. game. Yeah, there you go. Um, Jeff, I'm so happy to have you on this podcast for a couple of reasons. One, I just, uh, for most of these podcasts, it's just been great to have an excuse to talk with mm. my friends for a bit. Um, we're all very busy people. We all have other projects. And so this has been a great way to bug people to force them to just kind of sit with me for an hour and talk, you know, for funsies. Um, but then on top of that, I'm extra excited to talk to you because you are a rare species on the show. You're someone who's actually read comics, and quite a bit, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, without getting too deep into it, I started collecting comics when I was six, so that would have been, I'm a little older than you, that would have been in 1981. You beat and, me to it. And I read comics uh, daily from that moment. I think the very first very first comic I ever read was an Incredible Hulk where he fought the leader. And, oh, uh, nice. I was just transfixed by how big the leader's head was and how green everything was and and uh, how sad the Hulk seemed. And uh, and so from that moment on, I was like a daily reader of comics until my probably into my early 30s. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, collector, you've read X-Men. What's your background with X-Men in particular? Uh, sure. Yeah, I just my first X Men I ever bought. I don't know why I remember this stuff because I'm not gonna remember anything useful uh, for this <laughs> podcast. First X Men I ever read, I think, was 141. So that was like Days of Future Present, maybe. Oh, somewhere, nice. Somewhere around there. It's like I can still see the cover. It's like Logan has got his claws out and he's like defending himself. Maybe he's got like a leather jacket with like a yeah. Uh, I don't know, like some f uh, fur on the end of it. And I think he's like maybe hi maybe protecting kitty pride if not there's just pictures of x-men behind him that are like wanted ads i don't know anyway uh so i and i immediately immediately like i think most kids fell in love with wolverine and yeah. then i fell in love with colossus yeah and then i fell in love with kitty pride yeah uh and then it just kept going and going and i was by far, uh, I was a huge comic book fan. I read everything Marvel and DC. Even like was reading like Rom the Space Knight. Was reading Elf Quest. Mm. So I was reading like a, a stuff that wasn't quite. I got really into Valiant uh, back in those days. And then uh, and then eventually uh, I aged up into Vertigo uh, and kind of started to leave the, the the superheroes behind a little bit. But I would say like my 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 meat and potatoes was X Men and Batman. Oh, okay. Wow. We we are. I didn't realize how similar we were. Batman was my introduction to comics in general, and mm. X Men has been my love for forever. Yeah. No. It's very similar to me. I mean, X. I well, I guess I can't say Batman was my introduction, but it was definitely like 
when I discovered discovered Batman, I want to say it was like Batman Year One was yeah. the, the first series that hit. No, no, it was whatever came first, Batman Year One or Ten Nights of the Beast. I don't remember which one it was, mm-hmm. but it was either one of those. I read it and that was that was it. I was hooked. I was like, it was dark and it was way different than the pajama Batman uh, that I would read. Yeah. And uh, I think yeah. I think yeah, I think Batman has been the most consistently high quality title that DC has had for decades. Oh, absolutely agree with you there. Yeah, it's so good. And I would say Superman's um, been the least quality <laughs> superhero. It's been a bad. mixed bag. I'll yeah. give you that. It there's been some like I like New Fifty Two was good, and um, there's been some other good bouts in there. But it's it's he's a hard. I I agree. He's a hard character to write for. Uh, I think actually one of his best friends was actually written by our author of the evening, Grant Morrison's All Star Superman was fantastic. Oh really? I'll have to check it out sometime. It was very good. It was a little bit of a. It's more like a what if. It's a little bit of a telling of uh that maybe the final story of Superman. Mm. Um as only Grant Morrison would write it. Sure. And, but it was, uh, it was very good. And I, I don't know if Grant Morrison did all-star Batman. I, th- I assume they did. Um, but that was also fun. Um, why did you fall off on comics or X-Men in general? I'm curious. Uh, well, I think I fell off of superheroes in my, probably in my early twenties. I just, uh, I got, I was, I was, I mean, I've I've always been a big reader, and I was as much right. as I was reading comic books, I was reading novels. And uh, what was the book you were trying to read on the way? I think it might have been to Australia. You were trying to read some some beefy tome of a book that you were having the hardest time reading through, but you uh, were bound to determine it was a classic. Uh, I was reading either. Um, I think it was, <laughs> I think it was War and Peace. Actually, it might have been War. And yeah, Peace. I was, I was at the, around that time. I was, I was committed to reading. I, I actually made it a New Year's resolution that I was going to get through Infinite yes. Jest and War and Peace. No, that that's year. what you were reading, Infinite, Infinite Jest. Jest. Yeah, I didn't get through either of them. <laughs> I've read, I've, I've started Infinite Jest fifteen times. I've read the first you made three it... chapters of Infinite Jest probably ten yeah. times. I think you, the way you described it, it felt like someone trying to cold turkey run an ultra marathon. <laughs> it, it did feel like that, yeah. And I consider myself a pretty, pretty well read dude. Uh, yeah. And I like some, I like some boring literate stuff. But yeah, I've, I've always had a little bit of trouble uh, with David Foster Wallace, um, which I guess maybe means I'm not as, uh, not as smart as I want to pretend I am. Um, <laughs> it's good uh, to be humble sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, well, in that case, I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I I don't remember where we were going with that, but oh, I know. I just I started to get a little headier in my twenties. You know, I was really into like the Beat Generation, and I was I was really into like Charles Bukowski and counterculture stuff, and and like I don't know, uh, the Cyclops and 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 Jean Grey's constant estranged relationship was boring to me at that point. And there was like on there was like Sandman uh, and and uh, w- was happening on Vertigo and. Yeah. Uh, Hellblazer, which is just I, to this day maybe my favorite uh, comic character. Of I all forget time. how much you loved Constantine. Oh, I love John Constantine. Hitman uh, was a Garth Ennis comic that was really kind of fun and subversive and kind of like kind of like flipping comics on its edge at the time. And then stuff like like Sandman Mystery Theater or like Transmetropolitan. Mm-hmm. You know, there was mm-hmm. a lot of there was a lot of good stuff in the like that counterculture area of not i won't say independent comics but uh maybe alternative comics in the 90s you know and and clearly that's gone on to the races you turn me on to stuff all the time that uh that uh i've checked out and uh there's uh, 
a million more offerings than there were back then, but that was like a core of stuff that was just... Uh, nobody was really doing anything like that at the time, mm-hmm. uh, I thought, and it was way more interesting, and it felt, to be honest with you, I just felt like better writing. Yeah, it, it, I, w- I will agree with you on a, on a lot of those accounts. Uh, you're talking about like DC's Vertigo run and um, this attempt at, th- that was like the first attempt at independent comics, even mm. though it's owned by DC. Yeah, um, Vertigo walked so that Image Comics could run, um, as far as like I'm concerned, as far as like the the story of the independent comic creator and yeah you're talking about a a great you know uh renaissance of you know non superhero conventional comic sandman just being in my opinion the pinnacle of that that era um god uh Still holds up to this day. So good. So you know what else I would throw up in there that I, I just popped into my head. It, well, it's in, in the same vein. Uh, the first four episodes of the Books of Magic, that initial yes. run. Once again, because I'm a huge Constantine fan, and he was brilliant yeah. in it. Uh, I think Gaiman wrote that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, no. It's, and it's funny you mentioned Image because I, I do credit. I think you're right. Vertigo walked so Image could run, and Image has done some amazing stuff. But Image is part of what turned me off of superhero comics because I was very excited. You know, I was in high school when Leefeld Mania hit, and yeah. Jim Lee was at the top of his game. And uh, well, I mean, like Ed McFarlane was, was doing Spider Man, right? And like the, Leefeld, kind of like corralled all these people Leefeld and Lee I guess and they yeah. they left to make Image Comics which created like a a dearth of excitement in superhero comics which I felt but also I was so jazzed about Wolfsbane Wolfsbane and like the uh, Savage Dragon and Youngblood and all these comics that they were telling us about and then they couldn't put out a comic on time to save their lives and their <laughs> inability to run Image in the first year really killed it for me and I got less excited about that stuff in general and then uh and then I realized as I got older that I didn't care about, with the exception of, of John Constantine, I didn't care as much about the comic book characters themselves as the writers. And so I started yes. following the writer wherever the writer went. So wherever Warren Ellis went, I went. Wherever Garth Ennis went, I went. Whatever Kurt Busiek went, I went. Uh, and so, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I'm there with you. I, growing up as a, as a, as a youthful comic enthusiast, I obviously because of the show you could tell that i really zoned in on certain titles and mm. stuck with them for forever x-men being the main one but it, it there was this you know method of comic consumption which was what you described follow the author or even follow the artist if you really just love yeah. someone's particular art because i i did find myself at times reading certain titles like wolverine or stuff like that and i'm like i don't like this art but i guess i'll keep reading it <laughs> but it's it's hard to look at it and it, it wasn't until i got older that i really started doing that um and following certain authors around grant morrison being one of them and i i can't remember the order of it i'm pretty sure though i read new x before i ever went back and read grant morrison's jla uh but yeah i mean i i've i've talked plenty of times on this show about certain authors that i certainly love to follow around jonathan hickman being Mm, a a very mm. particular one and and hence why the flagship episode of this podcast we covered house of x powers of 10 but hickman has done so many other great titles and crossover events i follow 
him around to a lot of titles. But Neil Gaiman being one of them as well. I just I, I will happily consume Neil Gaiman, you know, products oh, yeah. at any time. Well, I mean, to talk about like I I am lucky enough that I was I was of age when like when when Gaiman and and Alan Moore were at the peak of their comic book writing and I got to I yeah. got to I got to, like I I got to read Swamp Thing as it was released. That was a very <laughs> cool as a kid, you know. Even yeah. though I didn't necessarily understand all of it. Uh I'll throw Frank Miller in there as well. Like Frank Miller was doing stuff at the time. He was doing some of the best stuff that's still that that's been done to this day and I I really was lucky to grow up in kind of a golden era of of writers at least. Um but I, you know, I never followed artists like you're describing. But that makes so much sense that you did because you are an artist yourself, and you're far more visually attuned. I would say. Yeah, it's it's harder to follow an artist because their art can be just very hard to consume if you don't care about the writing or if the characters themselves aren't people that you're too enthusiastic about. But it's something that I appreciate, you know, especially in this modern times, uh, you know, with so many creators out there right now was just such a proliferation of so many titles and comics and everything being made that when you can find an artist that you really like it's it's just comfort you know mm -hmm. consumption where it's just you just love looking at how they're drawing someone i mean this this run alone new x-men frank quietly had a style that was unique and beautiful and married with in my opinion grant morrison's writing perfectly uh, I'll say this: I liked I liked the art better than the story <laughs> of New X Men. Yeah, of what, oh, of what I you can't asked wait me to till read. we get into this. Then, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't like it, but I I I definitely appreciated the art more than than uh, than the story. Okay, I, I really well, enjoyed it. That I mean, I, I want to get into that as soon as possible. So I want to talk through a little bit about Grant Morrison because Grant Morrison is a character themselves in comic history that I don't know if people might be necessarily too aware of just because they were very a prominent author you know during this era early 2000s and and years prior to that and has had great success since then but definitely hasn't been in the limelight for mm. a bit on on these main titles um and it, i think it's still important to know who they were you're talking about like these people like neil gaiman and frank miller and uh uh alan moore and all that kind of stuff and grant morrison was a participant in this kind of like british invasion is what mm -hmm. they call it yeah into comics because you know unbeknownst to a lot of people comics weren't just you know shipped internationally everywhere and so a lot of british kids didn't grow up with access to all the titles they had their own british comics that they were reading you know sandman being one of them with you know uh, i think alan moore was the artist for that um and even like x-men comics had specific particular ones like excalibur was their british title that was actually also <laughs> drawn by alan moore uh was excalibur so, a british i didn't even realize i read it as a well it was, I thought it it was, was another x-men title <laughs> it was another x-men title but it was it was basically mar the marriage of x-men and captain britain yeah. which was an x-men title that was uh, not, which was a british title that was brought into the x-men fold you know people oh. like uh you know uh the braddock family in general like elizabeth braddock and, and, who became psylocke and that kind of thing like they, they're originally you know captain britain characters is what they are oh i had i never I, I i guess i didn't know that that's really interesting that's cool yeah yeah it's uh i definitely want to do some uh an episode at some point going over excalibur because it's a pretty bizarre but fun comic with 
Nightcrawler and and Kitty Pride and uh, Rachel Gray Summers, you know Phoenix was um, was now never mind. I'm thinking of X Force. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 So Grant Morrison first and foremost was got, got their their you know come not come up and trying to think they they became famous first on DC Comics. They were writing for Animal Man, Doom Patrol, even Batman, mm. and then wrote for Vertigo, which was DC's... How would you describe Vertigo to somebody? Uh, I would describe Vertigo as the... as uh, If you... Uh, I'll put it in TV terms. It's the IFC channel of comic books. <laughs> okay. The independent film channel of comic books. It's yeah, just yeah, like... Yeah. It's more adult, weirder, yes. more out there, darker stories, dealing with more adult themes... Uh, typically not a lot of superhero play, but if there is, it's a it's a unique and typically an edgier take on yeah. it. Although I, I will say, uh, all of that made its way into mainstream comics by the time I had quit reading. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, yes. like, you, you read stuff like Ultimates, and you're like, well, they 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 found the edge pretty fast. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. Actually, uh, uh, we'll talk about Joe Casada in a second. Um, uh, you're talking about Ultimate Comics, uh, but yeah, Vertigo was where uh, Grant Morrison wrote several titles, a lot of, lot of uh, titles, including The Invisibles, which I think is worth mentioning, mostly because some people think that The Matrix, which has been unofficially confirmed as like really basing a lot of its stuff on The Invisibles. I don't know if a lot of people know this because it was kind of shuffled under the rug. A lot of people wonder if that was part of the reason why Grant Morrison wanted to go over to uh, Marvel because essentially the parent company of his comic book place had maybe stolen his work and passed it around as the basis of the hit franchise, The Matrix. It's it, it's all you you can argue this for you know all day long, but The Invisibles was a very important part of 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 their comic book history. Grant Morrison, I didn't know this, but the book was actually literally infused with chaos magic. Which is was a as the contemporary practice that Morrison participated in, hmm. um, and had actually told journalists that the book was uh, the book's contents were given to them by um, via an alien abduction in Kathmandu. <laughs> That's Grant Morrison for you. Um, oh, a, a, a very a very colorful individual. I will say that. I I gotta say uh, the the Matrix revelation is interesting. I, it's funny because I've heard so many different. You've heard I've heard so many different urban legends about the origins of those Matrix movies uh, and where they came from. Um, so that, that that's a new one that I hadn't heard. But uh, mm-hmm. I will also say I read the whole run of The Invisibles, and sitting here thinking about it, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember a thing about it other than I loved it. I remember loving it, but it like I, I, for whatever reason that story didn't stick in my head. I know I I know I owned it all, and I I was excited. For it to come into the into my pull list every month, but I just I can't. I remember, I like time or planetary travel was a big part of it, but that's all I can remember. Yeah, and th- there was also just certain character elements, and even even the the style of it, the mm. the leather clothing and mm. the alternative lifestyle. It was it was all something that people consider might be where. I mean, there's rumors that that the comic itself was passed around set. You know, interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, and so, but. 1996 was a big time for Grant Morrison because that was when they revamped Justice League into JLA and turned it into a new best-selling status comic. Um, I adore that run of Justice League. JLA is peak 
Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Flash, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, that stuff is just so, so good. Mm. And so, but from after that, you know, Grant Morrison's already making a name for themselves as someone who makes hit comics, moves over to Marvel, thanks to Joe Quesada, who had recently become editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics in around uh, 2000. Um, and paired up and started writing for Marvel Boy, which was the, uh, a, a revamp of a character, and then Fantastic Four. And that was then when Grant Morrison was given new X-Men and paired with Frank Quietly um, and was kind of tasked with revamping X-Men because the X-Men weren't doing very well. I don't know if you know that around that time. Mm-mm. No, that's interesting. Yeah, they 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 had been going, you know, on a hot run for a long time with Chris Claremont and then, you know, Jim Lee took over for just a short while and made them into the 90s X-Men, but they were kind of in a little bit of a slump. There was this there was this attempt at something called the X-Men Revolution prior to New X-Men to change them up a little bit and mix up the team. It I like that era, but it didn't do well in sales. And so right before New X-Men an event happened called Eve of Destruction. Eve of Destruction is this story where... So Magneto was gifted Genosha, essentially. Do you remember Genosha? It plays a big part in New X-Men. So, yeah, and I was going to talk to you a little bit about that. I remember Genosha being like an island continent or something. I guess maybe Magneto was involved with the creation of it. But it was like a, it was like a refuge for mutants, right? Like a utopia for mutants where they could be left alone. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, kind of s- unfortunately segregated from from the uh, normie population that feared them. Yes, originally, actually, it was a mutant slave nation where they were a a enslaved secondary class that were used for the benefit of this you know, upper-class human population, to, you know, to to grow this nation. But during this big event where Magneto almost uh, broke the magnetic poles of the Earth <laughs> to uh, <laughs> get him to not do that, they said, yeah. you can have Genosha and turn it into a mutant nation for yourself, and they will recognize you as the actual leader of this nation. You know, you will be globally recognized, and you can have this. Well, that worked for a little while, and then Magneto decided, like, oh... I want to do what I want to do. I'm gonna, I'm going to militarize the entire nation. Yeah. And attempt to use them to basically this this like population of like 16 million mutants to take over the world like he'd always planned on doing, you know, the subjugation of humans to the betterment of mutants. But thanks to this weird group of X-Men that weren't the typical ones, they were able to defeat him. Dazzler was there. You know Dazzler. Uh, you got to love Dazzler. Prestidigitation. Uh that's all she's got. That's basically it, but but it worked, and she was able to help them defeat Magneto, and Magneto was crippled by Wolverine at the end of the fight. Um, that's why in this run of New X-Men, you might have seen a flash of an image of someone who looked like Magneto in a wheelchair before the extinction event that happens in this first three issues of X-Men, New X-Men. Mm-hmm. You might have, uh, it might have been hard to be, recognize that as Wolverine. I mean, as Wolverine, as Magneto. Um, no, I didn't recognize. They just, they just keep, well, at some point they refer to him as dead. In, yes. Yeah. And so he was on Genosha at the time. Okay. The other thing that's a big thing to note that uh, was happening around the time of this new X-Men release was the release of the first X-Men movie. That was in 2000. And oh. this was a, a 2001 story. And so you can, if you think about that uh, in, in, you know, cases of like, you know, what might have 
influence what you can you can see connections of the of choices that were made in the x-men movie and even yeah. choices that were made in new x-men so let me ask you this because so this is the beginning of grant morrison's run on the yes. x-men his his attempt at kind of revitalizing a, a waning franchise how long did his run last they started in uh number 114 which is okay. what we read Okay. And, or, or uh, yeah, number one fifteen, one fourteen, and I think they went to number one fifty. I think one fifty was the end of the arc, Planet of X, which was the big culmination of everything. And then I believe, if I have it correctly, there's three issues after that. That was a, that was Grant Morrison telling a story of like a potential future end of the X Men. It was again mm. another like what if kind gotcha. of thing. Uh, and then that was it. And then Grant Morrison left. So that's about a three-year run or so. It sounds like one fifteen to one. Yeah, I guess the math would come out that, to that. Did I yeah, get that right. Okay, so that's a pretty beefy run for comics. It uh, is. It is. Yeah. At this point in time, because you know, I had dipped out of comics pretty largely. Certainly, superhero comics at this point. Um, I was reading stuff like I, th- I want to say I was reading. Then I'll be embarrassed if this wasn't out at the time. But I feel like in this area I was reading like Why the Last Man, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, I feel like it would have been anyway. Um, I, I was pretty ignorant of what was going on with X Men at this point, though, uh, outside of the movies. So is this the only X Men title at this point? Like, because like when I dipped out, there was like. X Uncanny and New X Men, like X Men Blue and X Men Red and X Men Purple and <laughs> Super New X Men. You know what I mean? There was like forty-seven <laughs> yeah, yeah, different yeah. titles, like Spider Man. And uh, I, is that still going on? Are there still other monthly? Because I'll the biggest takeaway I had from the comic series, without you know, we're not we're not into it yet, but was that it was a bigger story than was told, and I felt like a lot was left on the table, and the and and I was wondering if it was covered in other comics at the time, like from different perspectives. Yeah, this was the, the taking over of the adjectiveless X-Men storyline. Um, so that's why the numbering isn't like, oh, new X-Men number one. Uh, prior to that was X-Men number 113, and this was retitled to new X-Men number 114. Um, alongside that, I do know Uncanny X-Men was still going on. Uh, don't believe Grant Morrison was writing for that at all, but they the X-Office has always been somewhat of a collaborative place so that they don't just completely you know, utilize characters at the same time or do, you know, uh, contradicting things with characters. I don't exactly know what other titles might've been going on at the time. I believe this is after generation X. I believe this wasn't during an X force run. However, um, you brought up ultimate X-Men. That was part of Joe Casada's, uh, history was that his legacy was that when he became editor in 1998 and then editor in chief in 2000, he made a lot of changes happen, one of which was uh, in uh, striking up these three main titles. I don't know when in succession they started, but he started Marvel Knights, which was these standalone kind of uh, looks at smaller characters that don't necessarily have their own titles, like Ghost Rider. And it's like Jessica Jones or... Jessica Jones, maybe. I think Blade was in there. Mm, mm. Um, and then also started up Max... M-A-X, which was an adult version of Marvel Comics. Um, there was like Wolverine Max and Deadpool Max. Um, some of some of those were actually really fun. It was like, you know, they could swear and there was much more gore and <laughs> were sex they, and all that kind of stuff. Were they considered canon? No. Okay. These were not canon. They were if they were they were basically like if you could let someone just kind of take it into a rated R space, what could you do <laughs> yeah, with these like characters? Wolverine after dark. 
kind of yeah, 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 yeah. totally gotcha. Um, and then also started Ultimate X Men, and so I know Ultimate X Men was going alongside this, but Ultimate X Men is not also non canonical to six three six or six one six universe. Okay. Uh, um, I I don't know what other titles, but at the very least, Uncanny was still going on. So there was other stories being ha- happening, and that's also why I had you read the X Men Annual mm. because. It was also an important part of setting up some of these very important story pieces and characters for the new X-Men run. A lot of people might be confused as to what an annual is. It's essentially a one times a year title that they would release that sort of made up the like a, a, an odd like fifth week in a month kind of thing. Um, and it was sometimes canonical, sometimes non-canonical. It was, it's kind of confusing when you had to read them and not read them. They Mm -hmm. were an extra, they were also longer. They cost more more money. Yes. That's what I remember about them is it was annoying because they were bigger and exciting, (laughs) but they cost more money. And then half the time they didn't matter to the story. And I, yeah. Right. Right. It was a real crapshoot with annuals. It was. And so that's why I wanted to read this one specifically because this was one that you should read. Um, They've kind of fixed that a little bit with modern ones where almost every title can matter. Not every title has to have like, you know, the most groundbreaking things, but the more modern stuff like um, they've they've started this annual event called X-Men Hellfire Gala. I don't know if you've seen anything about that. No, sir. It's their play on the Met Gala. The actual, you know, real life Met Gala thing where the X-Men host, it's very funny. Um, the X-Men host a big event on Krakoa, their island that they uh-huh. live on now. Yeah. And it's their time to show off to the humans, essentially. Humans aren't allowed on Krakoa all year long, but they invite a certain, you know, entourage of humans, superheroes, political dignitaries, stuff like that, and show off stuff. But they've... But big things have happened every time they do those big important events. The first one being they uh, terraformed Mars as their own um, place, um, and the ex- the mutants took over Mars essentially. And another one was there was this huge someone seemingly murdered the Scarlet Witch, and it seemed like it was Magneto, and it, so it started off the trial of Magneto. Oh, but yes annuals back in the day were confusing you didn't know if you need to read them or not so i wanted to show people this is one that you could jump onto it's on marvel unlimited and you can read it and it has the origin story of two very important characters not the origin but the beginning the introduction of two very important characters john sublime who's a big villain for the run of new x-men and zorn who's a huge addition to the team of the x-men for this whole grant morrison run so that's why i had you read that and um, and by the way, just real fast, if that all is confusing to you, take heart. It's just as confusing to me. And I, there was a time in my life when I owned over ten thousand comic books, and I had been reading them for like thirty straight years. And I, st- it's st- it was confusing to me then, and it's doubly confusing now. Comic books are a mess, man. When you try to they are. sit down and make sense of it, but they're fun. They're fun, and that's why I made this show was because I think X Men are very fun, and just because you don't know who Zorn is doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to jump onto one of my favorite runs, which is new X-Men um, and be able to kind of jump into this, 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 what was a, a jumping in point. But if you were to come into this cold Turkey, it's going to be confusing. I'm sure some things were confusing to you, Jeff, because they probably made references to certain things that happened prior that you were like, I don't know what that is. Namely, I wanted to point out that right before this was another arc called the 12, which was a big apocalypse uh, story arc where he was trying to 
fulfill some major thing he wanted to do by by finally taking over the body of Cable and turning himself into the ultimate mutant. And sen- essentially, he, he it didn't work out, but he did take over Cyclops' body. And so Cyclops essentially died and then was resurrected after being taken over by Apocalypse. Oh, is that why he was in such a bad, weird mood through the whole thing? Okay, why he was celibate and having trouble connecting with Jean Grey? Okay, Yes. He basically got taken over by one of the worst mutants at the time ever, and it messed with his head, and so he that's why he was going through some stuff during this. Gotcha. Um, The other thing that you probably were confused by a little bit was the image of how Beast looked in this comic. Man, that boy was that stupid. Uh, I was hoping (laughs) we could get into that uh, because that seemed like uh, that seemed like somebody desperate for some ideas on what to do with this character. Like I don't know, let's make him a cat. It it was. I I I thought it was fun, but I completely acquiesced to the the call out that it's very weird. Prior to this was another X-Men title called Extreme X-Men, which I want to do an episode on eventually. I love it a lot. Uh Um, But during that comic, Beast almost dies during a fight with like this crazy mutant. And in order to save him, Tess, who's another member of the X-Men at certain times, she um, basically turns on a secondary mutation that will help him heal but it transforms him into kind of a new evolved form. It's kind of a play on what Beast has done a lot through his run, which is he changes looks as mm. he as he evolves into different forms of his mutation. He was always he he originally was just a pink skinned, non hairy, big hand, big foot dude. Yeah, that turned into Gray Beast, where he grew all the hair and had the the pointy ears and teeth and all that, and then he turned into Blue Beast. And was that for forever? And, 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 and by, by the way, sweet spot for for Beast, at least for me. It's like Blue <laughs> yeah, Beast yeah, yeah. is the way to go. Let's just, like yeah, yeah. Final form. He let's looks, stick with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the form they used in the '90s X Men cartoon. It's the form they essentially tried to adapt uh, in the films. And but this was Cat Beast. Um, Cat Beast didn't stay forever. They eventually turned it into a, a much worse ape-like looking one. Ugh. So um, it, it got worse. But he looks a bit more, I guess, normal is the word I would use to what, describe how he looks now. Yeah. So where where did how did he go for where did he go after ape? Did he just like did they just start to revert back to to like more traditional blue beast? Yes. Okay. There, he, he, there, they kind of like they found an in between point between ape beast and classic beast, uh, and he's kind of sitting there because the ape beast was very weird no one liked it from the mm. get-go it, it wasn't something that was you know held on to by anybody so i think they realized that but i think a little bit of the jonathan hickman run changed that they changed the art a bit on him so just kind of like we're not going to talk about eight beast mm. he's gonna look like this now so that's why beast looks weird that's why cyclops is mopey that's why he's talking about the whole apocalypse thing gotcha. that's that's your prep yeah. Was there any other blank spots you were like, what the heck were they talking about? No, I don't think so. I just, I think the biggest question which you answered was that I was just wondering, because, you know, Marvel loves a crossover event. They love to make you buy seven comics to read one story. And so I was oh, just yeah. wondering if I was missing out. Because, like, 
you know, I guess we'll get into it when we go through the plot, but I just felt like I wasn't seeing enough of the story. I feel like we were we were jumping from scene to scene. And so I was wondering if stuff, if there was more f- uh, flavor in other comics. And then also, it's like, uh, I just, I was surprised at how small the group of X-Men was. Because, you know, yeah. if, if the X-Men has, as a group, has one problem, it's that the cast of characters is half the size of the Marvel Universe at this point. Like, there's so many great X-Men characters, which I always understood to be why they split them up when I was a kid, not understanding capitalism yet, uh, <laughs> and why it made more sense to sell two X-Men comics than one. I just thought, like, man, they have so many great characters, they have to give us two comics to to, yeah. uh, to assuage us all. Um, but I was, yeah, I was just surprised by how sm- how, how whittled down the, the, the X-Men team was in that comic, because it was, it was tiny. It was whittled down for a reason, um, and and since we only read this first you know story arc called E is for Extinction, um, the we didn't get to it, but y- you saw at the end where, or even at the beginning of it, Xavier's talking to the group about like this mutant population boom that's happening and the future role that the school should play in that and being a big part of these new mutants lives that yeah. there was even a bigger calling coming for this school beyond what they'd done previously and so if if you continue to read new x-men you'll realize that it jumps into an inclusion of a brand new cast of students and though the, that's where the ranks get filled out a lot other characters also come and join them during certain parts you know kitty pride and rogue and all that kind of stuff but for the most part they the grant morrison took this opportunity to introduce a lot of new characters some that stayed around for forever like quentin choir and the stepford cuckoos some that kind of have taken a back step like beak and angel um and but like angel it, like warren worthington angel no sorry um uh was her name her name was angel salvador oh, sorry okay. sorry okay and she was uh i can't remember what her her mutant name was but um she was a she was a new student they introduced a lot of new students and uh, which was it w- was fun it, it, i i think it was it was a great you know revolution of new characters which has always been a, a, a interesting part of x-men you know they get new new students coming that's where the new mutants came mm-hmm. from originally and that's why we have kitty pride and magic and you know, karma and all those kinds of characters cannonball and warlock. sunspot warlock and all that so that's what this was going to be and so the the school at the end of this ease for extinction arc opens up and for the first time really in the history of x-men comics really becomes what it is a school as opposed to being this headquarters of just the x-men this you know the secret headquarters that only had like I don't know, sometimes 13 students in there. Yeah. This became full, which is kind of, again, it's hard to say which, you know, attributed to which, but that's what they showed off in the X-Men movies was that it was in fact a school full of young students and was led by this older class of students that now are professors teaching kids. Yeah, I will say, uh, and I had, I, it didn't cross my mind when I was reading it, but kind of thinking about it now, uh, and I will admit that, you know, my knowledge of, x-men over the last 20 years has been pretty limited i you know movies and then the occasional uh time i'll dip in and read like three comics and then dip out um is uh that you know that this is largely where the x-men are now like they they are a full-fledged school the the whole idea that xavier has identified all the mutants across earth and is trying to you know to get to them and 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 then dealing with this whole like I guess still dealing with this whole idea, and if they're still on Krakoa, which I did read some of that, 
Um, yeah. uh, there's still there's still this idea that like mutants are hated or there's mistrust between humans and uh, mutants and um, I don't know. I guess like I guess it's always been a the idea of the school for gifted youngsters has always been to safeguard and protect mutants and bring them up uh, safely through puberty. But I just feel like it became like a global operation uh, at yes. some point, and it feels like maybe this was the start of that. I'm I'm surmising. Uh, but it, yeah, it it really was. It it's it kind of can all blend together and feel like you know how it is. It's how it's always been. But this prior to this, it was still the X Men were this secret group of superheroes that no one knew who the leader was or where they were based, except for some of their villains who would come and destroy the school every once in a while. People didn't know that Professor Charles Xavier was a mutant and the world's foremost telepath. Cerebro didn't just operate as something that could just identify all mutants across the entire globe at all times. You know, Xavier couldn't always just contact his students no matter where they were mm-hmm. via Cerebro or his own powers. So that's why, like, at the beginning of this, the Beast introduced Cerebra, which uh, stayed around for quite a while. And, you know, honestly, you look at the image of how Cerebra looks where it's this full face mask, you know, helmet with a big X over Xavier's face. It became the groundworks of what he wears now in in the Hickman run where he basically walks around with a mobile Cerebro unit on his head at all times. Hmm. And it, it came from this design and this look at making the X-Men modern is what Grant Morrison and Joe Quesada were trying to do was to modernize these X-Men. It's even why they changed the clothes. The costumes became these kind of black leather with yellow accents, uh, more, I don't know, biker style clothing instead of the multicolored, you know, bright conventional superhero costumes. I feel like there might have been a reference or a joke early on in the in the in the series that I read about that actually now that you mention it. Um Yeah, they 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 talk about like they never understood why Xavier made them look dance around like that in yeah. those kind of, you know, frilly costumes and and Grant writes in there that like it was Xavier trying to get the world population to recognize them as superheroes alongside people like Captain America and mm-hmm. Iron Man and Thor and that kind of thing. And so, but they don't need to do that anymore because uh, they, they're going to be, they want to be accepted and just be normal in the world. And they're going to have a whole school of students. And so they need to be able to dress differently. Some people have mixed feelings of these costumes that are in the new X-Men, the black leather, you know, muted lacking in color style kind of ones. I think they're great for what they are. They were a fun change. I like change and mixing up. That's part of the, one of the fun things with the X-Men is that the costume changes. They all get to go through different... Well, even Wolverine's gotten a million different costumes, and some have been better than others, but that's kind of fun, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I totally agree. And and for and for the record, I'm totally fine with the with the black leather costumes. They seem okay to me. I, I never had I think I at never the very least... Well, I'll say that the costumes in the X-Men movies, I think, are the worst extreme <laughs> version of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And these ones were at least a little bit more fun. They had color accents. You even got people like Emma Frost, who is a, who who you know abides by her monochromatic white only style, and I love that she's an accent to this team as far as color and style. And at the very least, you got Beast with his conventional blue coloring, which is I think the way Beast should be seen. I don't like that they wrote into the movies later on that he turns back and forth just because it became easier for the actor to not look like Beast. Yeah. Yeah. If Kelsey Grammer can be beast for the entire movie, you all youngins can do it too. <laughs> yeah, that's Sorry. an excellent point. If he can sit through the makeup, you can sit through the makeup. Yeah, quit whining. Rebecca Romaine Stamos <laughs> sat in that chair and wore that makeup the entire 
two runs of no three movies of x-men that she did i can't that's got to be like an eight hour makeup job every day oh i, I can't was. imagine it Ugh. iconic though oh no for sure absolutely and a very and a very cool costume and very very well done effect it looked way better than a lot of the other stuff in the movies yes yes the other big change that happened was the inclusion of a character like emma frost into the team a lot of people might not understand who emma was prior to this emma has been a bad villain bad bad lady bad lady ran the hellfire club right was part of the hellfire club which was a, a nasty elitist group of mutants that were trying to do nasty things with their money and power and then also ran a counter school to xavier school with her own little team called the hellions Oh, I'd forgotten. Yeah, about that. They, yeah, they they always butt heads with like Generation X and that kind of thing and New Mutants. No, they didn't butt heads with Generation X because she ran Generation X. Um, but she they butt heads with the New Mutants, and so Emma's not been a nice person. But this was, I agree with this. A lot of people th- uh, consider Grant's retelling of Emma, this kind of rev- revelation and renaissance of Emma, as the best version of Emma Frost. I love her in this story and I love what she, what role she has played since then as part of the X-Men. She's one of, I think she's one of the best additions to the team. I don't know if you felt that way with this short three issue reading, but uh, I'm a big Emma fan. Uh, no, I, I, I was a big Emma Frost fan even when she was in the Hellfire Club. Um, yeah. I, I, I'll get the honest with you. I thought the Hellfire Club was as cool as the X-Men, you know? <laughs> mutants yeah. with neat powers were mutants with neat powers to me when I was a kid. And she was, she was like, she was like, I don't know, like a sexy, scary villainess, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was an awesome character. And then she also, she plays a great like within the team foil with her attitude and yes. I had read stuff with her in the X-Men later so I was used to the idea that she was in the X-Men uh, cool to see kind of the I guess the origins of it though yeah she she. I mean I guess joins... this is kind of when she joins right I got that impression yes okay. this is when she joins ex- officially X Xavier's like you know school for gifted youngsters she had prior prior previously been running uh, one of his other schools with Banshee called Generation X. Mm. And that's where like Jubilee and Husk and Skin and Mondo and uh, all these characters. And a lot of people don't know at this point where we're M Monet St. Croix came from where she's now a main part of the story. And, but this is when she becomes a main part of the school, which I think is great because at the core, Emma's character is while she see, comes across as someone who's an elitist, selfish, conceited individual, her, her weakness is the students. Mm. She, her devotion is to the students. It's why we find her at the beginning of the story teaching on Genosha. She's a teacher there with those students. And the decimation and extinction event at Genosha becomes a huge part of her character because it was the, it, it was a moment where she failed the most important people in her life, the students. She was, she had survivor guilt, you know, of being one of the only people who survived that extinction event and all of it. And this is not the first time she had lost students. The, the Her Hellions also were killed. And so this is a repeat of this offense that keeps happening to her. And so I think that's why Grant used that as a reason why she was going to join Xavier's school at the time where Xavier was opening up to a whole new cadre of students. And she was going to be a important part of this new school demographic. I'll, I'll say this for, uh, if you're not initiated in the X-Men and you're interested, uh, I could put it in more general terms. Uh, I view her as sort of Meryl Streep in the devil wears Prada without, uh, the students dying. A hundred percent. Right. Like that's kind of who she is. 
like ev- yes. evil, but but still with the moral compass and good somewhere in there, right? Yes, yeah. But yes. but 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 hoity-toity and like I think they even mentioned she carried like she goes back to save her Louis Vuitton bag at some point in the comic, like very very into status, you know. Yes, right, upper west very into status. Spends money like there's no tomorrow, but makes money like no one else. Yeah. Um. If you ever, I another one that I eventually want to do a, a episode on is there was this great solo series that told the origin story of Emma. That was just it was just I think it was just called Emma Frost or it might have been White Queen or something like that. Hmm. Um. It was a great story of how she came from being you know almost like an ugly duckling story. Really. Um. In in a very uh, elite and powerful family. She was the ugly duckling and it's her creating her own legacy, not via the help or power or money of her nasty dad, who was a jerk, but through her <laughs> own learning and streetwise, you know, abilities and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's a great story of, uh, she, she's originally not a blonde even she's, she's a brunette. Uh, it's interesting. Cause I would have, I would have pegged her as like a Rachel McAdams in mean girls in high school. It's <laughs> good to know. <laughs> No, no. And it's why she like she was part of the Hellfire Club and originally not even part of the leadership of the Hellfire Club. She was like one of the the girls mm. who there was there to uh entertain the uh gentleman, but she became the White Queen. That's why she got that title. So yeah, Emma's a big addition and then I can say this right now, if you're confused at who the heck this Cassandra Nova character is, this is the introduction of Cassandra Nova. You're not supposed to know who she is prior to this and she's she was she was a creation by Grant Morrison as the you know the antithesis to Xavier. Um, how did you feel about Cassandra? Uh, I didn't understand enough of the why to get her motivations. Really, I just felt like it was kind of glossed over, and she was just kind of plopped in as like, here's this old bald lady who seems to know more about <laughs> Professor X than he knows about himself, who's in his head mm-hmm. and seems more powerful. And she just came completely out of nowhere. And I felt I was a little flat footed by her, honestly. Okay. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's that's a very valid, I think, uh, perspective on her because you are this is you reading her as someone else would have, you know, reading the new X-Men because no one knew who she was. And you read the first three issues. And I think reading the first three issues and having that feeling is is perfectly valid. I will say later on as the, the story progresses, they give a lot more. Uh, information on who she is. She plays a a big role in this whole new X-Men thing. Um, I don't want to spoil it, honestly, but she essentially is... I'll spoil a little bit of her origin story. She is the genetic twin of Professor Xavier who he... (laughs) This this is where when I explain (laughs) comics, it gets a little silly sounding when I say things. In Uterum... He sensed her evil because she is the she is the evil opposite of Xavier, and he killed her in uterum. So she's the evil Bart who lives in the attic. Yeah, in the Simpsons. Okay, uh, I got it. <laughs> but he kills her. She is she is stillborn, and but she because she is actually an entity called the Mumadry. Or the mum dry, I can't remember what it is, but it's this, uh, this, this opposite of self. This idea of opposite of self that be, normally is incorporeal and and something that we don't, you know, actually physically deal with. I, I of- feel like this is an Eckhart Tolle uh, lecture now. All of a sudden, <laughs> I know it gets when you describe when you explain comics. It it sounds like a crazy person. It sounds like a crazy <laughs> it person. Does. 
there is, but I there love is it. no you. The, yourself is a part of the universe. Pain, yes. Pain cannot exist but, in, in your mind, <laughs> so your mind is not yours. Yeah, no, I got you. But because Xavier was so powerful, even even as a, as a, as a fetus, she was able to create her own body, which that's how she became the twin of Xavier. But he killed her in the womb. But she survived and eventually uh, get, makes herself her own body again. And that's the body you see at the beginning of this. She is Cassandra Nova. She has found Donald Trask, who is the cousin of Bolivar Trask, who is <laughs> the creator of the Sentinel program. Right. So some dentist. Uh, some dentist that she just needs his voice recognition and DNA to start up this uh, master mold who was creating wild sentinels who were improving upon themselves and were not limited by design or size. Now, here, um, here's what I'll say about this part of the story. Awesome. I thought this was the best part of the, the, whole, the whole thing. I love the idea of these, like, self-sustaining, uh, scrappy, like, yeah. making stuff out of, t out of sardine cans and old <laughs> wires, sentinels <laughs> that, like, are hidden in the jungles of Peru or wherever. They're, like, Ecuador. Ecuador, there you go. And uh, I, thought that, I thought that was very clever. I loved the idea of her bringing this dude in on a tour. She basically takes him through the facility and explains, like... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm just trying to, try to cut. You know, no, go for here, it. Keep going. She she essentially it kind of explains to him the cousin of the guy who started the Sentinel program. Which, if you're not super familiar with comics, the Sentinel program was this program. Uh, essentially, this guy Bolivar Trask created these giant, unkillable robots who existed to identify and destroy mutants. Right. Yes. So like they were like X Men killers. That was why they were put on Earth. Uh, and they were big, and at the time, I think they were scary, but to me now, they just look like purple men with beanies on their heads. Um, <laughs> the old ones do, right? They're pretty silly. They do. Uh, anyway, she comes in and she explains to him that mutants are going to destroy humanity, and he yes. can stop it by uh, essentially uh, taking over this program. Uh, uttering some commands, bringing the sentinel pro sentinels out of the jungle, and then they'll wipe out mutant kind, and he will commit genocide, but by doing so, become a hero and save humanity uh, from yeah. this greater evil, which is, uh, you know, the whole, the whole point of the X-Men, which is, if you peel back all the layers, it's just that, like, the ev everyday people are scared of people that are different. Uh, yeah. And so... Um, and so she wants to, needs him to help her wipe out the people that are different uh, for the betterment of, of all. Uh, and I, you can't see it because it's an audio podcast, but I'm using so many air quotes right now. It's insane. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then disposes of him when she gets what she needs in a really, I thought it was a funny, clever moment. I, and, I really, and I didn't see it coming and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I, I remember rereading this. I'm like, I, I remember reading it for the first time when I was younger in 2000s, and with that that panel where she explains in the most you know malicious and, and macabre way that she has she has no longer a need of him <laughs> yeah. and has assimilated him, and she heard that those drawings of of her basically phasing through him and just like playing with him like play doh. I didn't know what I was reading at the time, but I knew that it was creepy and weird, and I liked it. Yeah, it was good. It was. I thought that part was all great. Previously on X-Men. Hello, students, and welcome back to another episode. I appreciate you guys hanging out. I did not think I could get Jeff to do this show with me, and it ended up being one of the longest episodes we recorded. Jeff just let me keep talking about X-Men, and if you let me keep talking about X-Men... 
guess what? I'll keep talking about X-Men. Anyways, I hope you guys are enjoying this episode. Hope you're having a happy holidays. This is coming out Christmas, which is kind of fun. Um, if you are enjoying the show and want to share it with someone, that'd be a nice gift to me. Or you could join us on the Patreon and uh, check out brand new content we have on there that's extra for the show, like X Questions, a video series where I answer questions. It's kind of in the name. I'm not really clever in naming stuff. Um, but you know who is clever? The people who are supporting me on Patreon. People like BWP108, Brian Smith, Jacob, Dylan Gomez, Tom Held, Matthew Pownell, and Lord Jonathan, the ace of the third Esquire Jr. Anyways, the next episode will be out in two weeks. My special guest is Black Crystal, and I will let you know we're reading very soon. Enjoy the rest of this episode, and enjoy the rest of your holiday. Um, so am I to believe that Charles Xavier did some sort of baby karate in the womb to choke her out? Or was this a mental he, thing? It was a mental thing. They explain it later on when uh, I think it's like Gene and maybe Emma go into his head at some point to kind of finally figure out what this is. And they they tell it. They tell the story without dialogue. It's all images only. But okay. they show there's there's a panel of him as a baby basically mind-blasting her into oblivion. Hmm. And was she and, just an evil baby at this point, or was she the mummera or whatever you said? Yeah, she she was an evil baby, but she was she is this this known entity that normally doesn't have its own form. And so, yeah, he has, he he sensed that she was, you know, evil, just yeah. evil in the womb and knew that you know that's how they describe it that he descends that and and dispatched her as only baby Xavier can God, he was, <laughs> which is he was a <laughs> he was a murderer before he was even born wow. he was i mean and look at all, never been the hero of the story look at all the prejudice against magneto good lord Mm-mm-mm. yeah a lot of a um, lot of hypocrisy in those pages he 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 puts on a good show yeah. but he in the end he really does you know i mean even in this story he uh, which I won't give away spoilers of why he's doing and what's actually happening, but he, you know, shoots down Cassandra Nova, you know, um, there's a little bit more, be, you know, behind that. And I hope you guys who are listening to this podcast, read the rest of new X-Men to find out what it is. But I, I, yeah, Xavier's never been the good guy. Mm. He, he does good things, but he's made huge mistakes along the way with his students, with uh, his children. You know, uh, Legion is a great example of a huge failure on oh, his part. Oh, Legion, yeah. Who I, is a great story now. I, I love Legion. Great character. Uh, he had a great run in a title called X-Men Legacy, and he's a main character in a title right now called Way of X. He's mm-hmm. He's living his best life right now. Um, uh, funny enough, he's actually followed around by Zorn, who we are introduced to in New X-Men Annual 2001. He's followed around by Zorn, who, uh, and his brother Zorn, spelled differently, obviously. Um, (laughs) one with an X, one with a Z. And their job is basically, by, he told them, he's like, if I lose control of my mind and powers again, destroy me in, in an instant. And they are the only ones who could really do that with the black hole inside their heads. Um, but yeah, so Legion has always been a great, you know, failure on Xavier's part. And so, yeah, Xavier's never been the fully good guy. I, I, you know, it's good. uh, It's good life advice, right? Like be where, be in awe of, be impressed with, be on board with uh, a person with a vision 
yeah. uh, a strong vision. Because, and, but also, uh, be a little wary of them because uh, even if it's a vision you buy into, like clearly Charles Xavier wants to help uh, usher mutant kind in, uh, into uh, into acceptance into Earth and help people yeah. uh, learn and understand their powers in a safe environment so they don't uh, unintentionally inflict harm on other people. Uh, but anyway, uh, just be careful of a person with a strong vision because they'll do different things to achieve that vision than you will if it's yeah. not your vision. Charles example, yeah. Xavier, great example of that. Magneto, yes. another great example of that. A hundred percent. Which they address that a lot in, in the Dawn of X series that's going on right now with uh, Charles and Magneto, along with the Quiet Council running uh, the mutant population and uh, them making mistakes along the way, even with the most altruistic intents. Yeah. It's like... Uh... If you want a taste of what that's like, play Fable 3. The last half, a great Xbox 360 game, maybe Xbox One, I think 360. The last half, you become the king. I'm not spoiling anything. You have to make decisions. No matter how hard you think it through, you think you're making the right decision, you are royally screwing somebody else over. It is, it's frustrating. I'll say that. That's great. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> so, yes, um... The other thing that I, I wanted to talk about from this that they introduced, not introduced for the first time, but really made it a huge part of it, was Grant Morrison wanted to play around with secondary mutations. We already talked about Beast yeah. and that whole thing. The Emma Frost can turn into Diamond thing. How did you feel about that? Uh, I, I liked it. I thought it was an interesting, a, a little on-the-nose way to take her character. Um, <laughs> just because she's so uh, affected by status and and uh, like yeah you know and having the most expensive bags and diamonds and jewels and so it seems a little on the nose to turn her into an expensive jewel. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because I think it kind of fits her character and it was I guess an interesting way to uh, I don't know how how into the weeds we want to get with spoilers, but I guess it was an interesting way to to present her surviving the things she went through in the comic. Yeah, it, yeah. I think it, I think it was a, a creative way to decide how she would be one of the only survivors in that extinction event uh, because she turns into something that is one of the hardest substances on the planet. Yeah. It also was an interesting. Uh, they don't get into it in this first three issues entirely because they don't describe everything. It, it, I think even in the next issue they start describing it more in detail of what actually happens when she turns into this living diamond. She actually turns off her telepathy abilities when she's in that form. She doesn't have telepathy. She can't be affected by telepathy. In fact, they describe it as she loses empathy in most emotions while mm -hmm, she's in that form mm -hmm. and becomes cold as diamond. That's it, that's very D&D. &D. That's interesting. It's like you get to turn into another form, but we're going to take these other powers away from you. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it, it wasn't just like, let's make Emma OP. So now not only is she one of the most powerful <laughs> telepaths, but now she's indestructible and can like, cut anybody that she wants. It's <laughs> that she makes the choice when she's choosing between those two forms. It's like, how do we reinvent this character? All right, let's keep, let's give her all the same powers, but let's also make her Colossus, but also super sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you have to you have to give them their their weaknesses, you know, the downside to their abilities. I like that. I like that Morrison thought that through and did that. that that's cool. I, I, I Morrison's, you know, doings with Emma Frost might be the best part of their legacy. A lot of parts of what happens with in New X Men actually gets kind of retconned later, and I think in the end it was for the betterment of a, not not every single change, but there's a lot of changes they made that I think you know maybe shouldn't have stayed for forever. It was fun for the moment with Morrison, but 
they wanted you know the powers that be had some other plans with these characters and that happens sometimes with writers who are taking over the x-men that you know the editors-in-chief might have different plans mm-hmm. with them but i think their use of emma is emma for forever and and for the better of that character and i think that's so cool when someone can take these characters that have been around for decades emma's an old character been around for forever yeah and to be able to do something new and interesting and worthwhile with them that's awesome to me yeah no i totally agree uh and that's kind of the cool thing about the marvel well i guess the dc universe as well uh is that there are so many i don't want to get super literal here by saying this but there's so many diamonds in the rough out there right (laughs) so many great characters that have uh fallen by the wayside or or, are fallen to disuse that just waiting for some inventive young writer to dust off you know de-mothball and come up with a new angle on and uh in addition to creating new characters and stuff but just like they like the, the the universe is so full of uh of these entities that are just uh, so rife for possibility. It's, uh, it's one of the best things about comic books to me. Some of the best stuff they're doing right now with comics is they are in ways rehabilitating or changing a lot of these X-Men villains because they're all, uh, which is kind of like what Grant did with Emma, where all the mutants are living on Krakoa and are granted, you know, amnesty and a fresh start. But that's problematic when you talk about people like, you know, Omega Red and Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister. So Mr. Sinister is just like walking down the main street in Genosha (laughs) and he stops in and he gets like a scone and a cup of coffee (laughs) and just sits outside at a cafe and reads the paper. And no, but like, like, I don't know, I guess like Storm walks by and she's like, oh, hey, what's up, Sinister? And he's like, oh, hello. Like that's that's going well, on. Well, in, to a certain degree, yes. There there are some that that have found their way to being on the side of the angels and have you know, uh, they have found a way to fix what was motivating them prior. Some are not. Like for instance, Sabretooth is is a malicious murderer that they couldn't rehabilitate, and they went through a really great story with him. Mm. He was the first prisoner of Krakoa. And they resolve that with this like five issue miniseries called Sabretooth that now has turned into he's got his own title called Sabretooth and the Exiles. I recommend you read it. It's very good. Hmm. But other characters like, um, let's say, Exodus, who was a minion of Apocalypse, um, but originally was just a Renaissance knight, you know, part of not Renaissance. Uh, uh, what's it called? The Crusades. Um, he's now you know he's always he's, he was a villain of the x-men an acolyte of magneto and all that kind of stuff um and he's a he's a very important part of the x-men team now and he's great i love him they finally canonically made him gay he's always been gay and he's a character that found purpose within the x-men apocalypse is another one apocalypse played a huge role with the the foundation of krakoa and uh, you know kind of you know found his home with that nation and and it's it's hard to explain how they did it because he's such a complex character i yeah they did it. i have trouble with that like he is i'm sure it makes sense and who am i a person who hasn't bought a comic book in 15 years but he was like at least in my era of reading comic books he was the worst of the worst like yeah the, the I mean, he was he, oh he was the lex luther of he was the dark side of marvel right like yes he was like, to a degree to a degree yeah. like he was i mean there was the beyonder who was kind of a mol- thanos uh, and thanos 
and I, I guess Galactus, who never really, yeah, yeah, who yeah. never really showed up in X Men terms. But like, no, but his his name is Apocalypse. Yeah, he is the yeah. End. He was he was the he was a bad dude. It's interesting that they've rehabilitated that character. Do you did uh did Mister uh did Mister Sinister realize that if he takes his dumb cape and goatee off, he's just Colossus, and therefore he can just be a, he doesn't have to be evil. There is so much fun stuff they've done with Mr. Sinister, including playing around with his infatuation with his capes. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> not, not like no joke. I uh, love they that. basically Mr. Sinister was always like a very two-dimensional fun, but two-dimensional villainous character. I mean, it's in the know. name right there, Mr. Sinister. Yeah. There's no more two-dimensional than that, right? What Kieran Gillen did during a run uh prior to House of X and Powers of 10 with Mr. Sinister was kind of convert Mr. Sinister into this much more flamboyant and playful, albeit evil, but playful and sillier character. Talk about Grant Morrison improving Emma Frost. Kieran Gillen uh, improved Mr. Sinister to perfection and now is the, the, you know, the standard of who Mr. Sinister is. Um, and I think that's so cool about a lot of these X-Men characters that like what you're saying, if you can hand them over to someone who has a cool idea to do something new with them, they can really breathe new life into these characters and, and new X-Men was an attempt to do that with the title overall to, to modernize these characters, bring them into, you know, the new millennium is 2001 and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you even see uh, references in in the comic for a while in New X Men that are referencing like real world events and real world trends and real world characters. I mean, even in this first run, you get some imagery that closely and and intentionally, I have to imagine, reflects nine eleven. You know, the yeah. extinction event. There's even a shot of a plane like thing falling into Magneto's tower and destroying it. I mean, he knew what he was tapping into. He knew what audience he was talking to when he, when he, when you know, you know, he wrote these things and Frank quietly drew them. And, but it, Grant Morrison was was trying to do something new with these, and, and I can feel you on like it being confusing and feeling like you're not getting the full story. I think that's always going to be a problem with these books because there is just so much, you know, baggage to to unpack. Even in this one, you were like. Why is Cyclops all moody about this apocalypse? Right. Thing? I have no idea what he's talking about. Well, and not just that, but like if you take a step back and look at the story, and I'm not including the annual, obviously, because it was a separate story, uh, but the three episode arc, um, like I don't know how much, how spoiler we want to get, but million, like 11 million people died in one panel. 16 million. 16 million. Uh, 16 million people died like in one panel. And they got about as much play as Alderaan did. It's like, uh, it's like, <laughs> oh no, I, I sense it. Uh, seven, three million, 16 million people are saying, where did our storylines go? Kaboom, they're gone. And then it's like, oh, we got Emma Frost still. And then it's like, it's just like, there's, <laughs> I don't know. There was no cutaway to how that affected the rest of the world or no like mm. larger discussion about it. They're like, well, that happened anyway. On to the, pow- the, the matter at hand. And I know, I know that there's only so many pages, like a comic without ads sure. is like 23 pages. It's just like yeah. it's one of the like you were you were mentioning uh, writers coming in and revitalizing characters and storylines. And I think that is the absolutely one of the strengths of comics as a creative medium is I don't think there's any other creative medium that hands the reins over to completely different people every four to thirty six months and just yeah. says, guess what? You're in charge of Batman. <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> and we're going to let you do with the, for, there's an editor, you know, there's a leadership structure, but for the most part, you're now in charge of, you're, you know, you're now, you're Stan Lee, you're in charge of Fantastic Four now, you know, do whatever yeah. you want. And then if we don't like it, we'll just retcon it away or the next writer can can scrap it and we'll come up with some dumb or, or clever way to, to uh, re-con, you know, reconfigure it so that it doesn't matter. Uh, that's one of the strengths of comics. But I think one of the weaknesses is you, ha- you have to kill 16 million people in one panel and then you, you don't get time to... The stories are too big for the amount of pages that tell them sometimes, I guess is what I'm getting to. And that bothers me. Uh, because I feel like I'm, I mean, it's nice from a creative, from, from a, if you have a lot of, uh, if you, if you like to daydream, you can, and one of the things I guess I liked about c- comics when I was a kid was you can have those stories in your head and you can just kind of sit down mm-hmm. and, and play that out in your, in your brain. But, uh, as an adult, I, d- I want more, like I wanted more, I wanted to see the effects of that. I wanted to, I was immediately mm. reminded of a comic series called Damage Incorporated that I read when I was a kid. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I th- yeah, I have. And it was, I loosely remember it being about, um, about the, 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 the people that go in and clean up after superheroes come and fight. Basically, like the, yeah. like the, the city, uh, like, uh, streets and bridges team that has to come and clean up all the rubble after Superman gets into a fight. Uh, it's what they based uh, Vulture in the Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, his little business that he's oh, running yeah. at the beginning Th- of the movie. That's a great point. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And like, I, I, I kind of like that. I feel like there's like, there's a lot to an entire. There's a lot to a genocide to cover, and it's just like when you when it's <laughs> when they cover it in two panels or three panels, and then we move on, and it's not even really referenced again. And it's just like, oh man, I feel like I feel like maybe in one panel, Wolverine would like take a knee and be like, oh man, I'll I'll go on in a second. I'm just really having trouble dealing with the fact that almost everybody I've ever met and every mutant I've ever saved uh, over the course of my however long I've been alive, nobody knows, uh, is just wiped out in an instant. I'm gonna I'm gonna need a second to, to I just. Got to breathe you know like it's just i feel like there are bigger moments that need to happen mm, i think that's valid criticism yeah like that can happen where you feel like a, a writer might not spend as much time as a moment as you want i mean there's the other way of looking at it is that it was the the cliffhanger at the end of the issue that left people for a whole month you know wondering mm. you know having, having to process that we consume these very differently now yeah and just can just go on to the next issue immediately that's a great but point time, because I read it in a coffee shop and I there was no break between episodes. Like I just read the whole no, the whole thing in thirty minutes. And just, that yeah. uh, to me, when I read it, I, I I still think your criticism is very valid because uh, you're right. They 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 really do. Even in the next issue, they you know they've got Beast there holding skeletons and ruminating on how tragic this is, and they they you know they pull Emma out of the rubble and that kind of thing. But they they really don't spend an excessive amount of time. They they're, they're moving on to other story points. It's the largest but, extinction event in the history of the planet, to my knowledge, at that point, right? Yeah. But at the time when I was reading it, and I, that was the only issue that was out, I, I remember just looking at those that last page where they've got the numbers in the top right and they are diminishing at extreme levels with each panel as it goes by. And I remember just being dumbfounded at the loss of, you know, half the mutant population in the world in one event. And it 
it struck me hard at the time. So it probably played well, you know, when it was done live, but now it has, it loses a little bit of its weight when you could just kind of move on. You're like, really? They're just like, all right, well, we're going to just keep moving on and fight this Cassandra Nova and open up the school and that kind of thing. You know what? I, I gotta be honest, John, I had never considered that, that portion of it. And now that you describe it that way, I, I, I want to rescind a little bit of my, my criticism because I think you're right. I think, I think uh, it's, you know, it, 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 I don't want to get into a larger discussion, but we, you know, we have this on-demand uh, life that we, we live now where we can draw up like any piece of entertainment from uh, pretty much any time ever in recorded history as long as it's been digitized as long as it's been digitized and and binge it uh to our heart's desire uh and 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 those pauses those breaks that like year that year off between seasons of sopranos that like yeah. those were important they like yeah. allowing people to breathe with a story is a big deal and is important and uh, i hadn't considered that but i i do i mean i still think some of the, the, the essentially the, yeah, yeah. the the story is still bigger than they're able to tell in a comic book and that's a limitation of the medium but i hadn't i hadn't considered that angle of it and i think that's a that's pretty salient and, va and a valid point i think that was something Grant did pretty well uh, through this run at the very least these first few issues of like really ending on heavy notes mm where you know the, the first one ends with that genocide and it was it was breathtaking when that happened or, or the second issue ends with that um the first one ends with basically the reveal that cassandra looks like xavier and and that was confusing but interesting and then the g genocide and then issue 116 ends with just simply xavier for the first time in at that point what 40 years of comics telling to the world that he is a mutant and the school is that and so that was also just massive another, and, another one of those things that like looking it's kind of like going back and, and watching uh an alfred hitchcock movie and and recognizing its brilliance and its place in history but it's nobody's running out of the theater terrified uh, from watching vertigo in in 2022 <laughs> like they were in the 70s <laughs> and, or the 60s and 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 that's a, that's an excellent point like i i Xavier's been out to me for so long. I yeah. forgot that he ever had to come out. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I even forgot that until rereading this because there's so many things that are now. Because this is 20 years ago. Yeah. I've, I've read 20 years of X Men since then. There's been a lot that's happened since then. So, uh, I, you know, I forget that it's like, oh my god, I forgot. Like the school has just been full of students for 20 years. I forgot that prior to that, it was just like you know the 15 of them that were on whatever gold and blue team was at the time, mm -hmm. and people didn't know that that's you know what the school did. Uh, it's even like there's things that Grant will do later on in this run if you keep reading it where he really revolutionizes other things like Wolverine's origin. This was where Wolverine finally getting his origin story came from or even the what the Weapon X program was, um, which I hope to talk about soon in an episode with Blaine who wants to do some stuff on my uh, my buddy Blaine Gibson. Some of you might know who that is. Jeff, you know who mm -hmm. that is. Um, he wants to do some stuff. And so I want to show him one of my favorite characters, Phantom X, who Grant Morrison created during New X-Men and changed what the Weapon X program was for forever. And I think for the better. It was great. Hmm. Um, but uh, all that to say that... Uh, you know, I don't know where I was going with any of that, but <laughs> <laughs> we can just keep rambling about X-Men all the time. But, you know, it, it, Grant was very good at making big 
changes at a time when X-Men needed something to revitalize. Well, and, and it sounds like he made a lot of, like he laid a lot of new foundational bricks that are still in place today. Yes, yeah. yes. That that now just feel like, oh, it's been that way for forever, which I, I is, you only can name that with a few people. Like that's really like you would describe someone like Chris Claremont as the, oh, the other person who did that. Yeah, I mean, Chris Claremont, is the X Men to me yes. in my mind? I mean, he was the writer for most of my childhood. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. the man control ran the title for about seventeen years, um, straight off of Giant Size X Men, which we did a whole episode on, and uh, you know he is. I mean, it's really like in my book, it's like it's Chris Claremont, and at this point, Grant Morrison, and then after that, Jonathan Hickman. Hmm. Those are the people who have created these. You know, you think of like you know. Uh, common era of how we d- design how we look at time that's how you should really break up the timeline is you know it's it's stanley created them with you know jack kirby and then it's chris claremont really took them to where they were supposed to be grant morrison changed them for the modern world in 2001 and then jonathan hickman fixed them after what really needed to be fixed yeah we don't we don't need to go too much into X-Men Annual because we've been talking for so long and I've been enjoying this, but I don't want to keep you too long. But I did want you to read X-Men Annual because I because I, I, I kind of as an advisement for those who are going to read this to also make sure not to miss it because it introduces a character called John Sublime who is leading these U-Men who are, you know, trying to harvest mutant parts to evolve the human race that they know is dying it's, and then on top of that it's, it's, they're trying it's to become silly. they're trying to become mutants right i mean essentially they are they're like i may not have the gene but i've got uh i've got enough i can staple I've, these wings to yeah back. but i've got enough cash to buy some wings yeah and then introduces zorn who is a very important part of new x-men who is this brand new mutant who has a a black hole of a star as a as a brain um and became one of my favorite characters of the X-Men lore ever. Grant did some stuff with him in the end that got changed and retconned later, I think for the better because I liked Zorn. Um, and he, he did some weird things with it. And But Zorn is very important, so you're going to want to read this to your X-Men annual, new X-Men annual 2001 to get that full story because it, it does set up not only this new character, but the other than Cassandra, no- Cassandra Nova, the big villain of New X Men, which is John Sublime. He becomes a big part. Of who, who is John? What a dumb name, John John Sublime. By the way, <laughs> I I suppose I could describe him a little bit so that people don't get fully confused. But he he is this. He is a man. Oh man, I can't get into it. He Sublime is actually okay. He's actually a. A prehistoric bacteria (laughs) 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 who has been around for forever and um, he can affect and control humans and has been doing it for forever, but he has no control over mutants. Mutants have evolved past his... The, this this sentient bacteria's ability to control and shape humanity, and so that's why he, with this population boom, this which is what plays into a lot of New X Men, is like granted, sixteen million mutants died, but by the end of New X Men, they're at like hundreds of millions of mutants are on the planet. Yeah, and so he is the he is trying to negate that finally by creating this pharmaceutical program by creating the U-Men um, by, you know, even trying to weaponize, you know, creatures like Zorn and that kind of thing. And so he's a big baddie in this. He is the big baddie that Grant 
designs for it. So I won't get into any more. I already played my hand by saying <laughs> no, no, no. Bacteria. I totally understand, and I know you have to wrap up. I have one qu- quick question for you, and then I'll no, I'll, yeah, I'll, you ask away. I'll let you go. Um, uh, I'll let you go from your podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Jeff, stop talking to me about X-Men. <laughs> oh, man, this is really just a bummer. I hate this so much. So just out of curiosity, X-Men are all living on Krakoa. Are all mutants living on Krakoa? Are there hundreds of millions of mutants living on uh, there? Or are mutants still, like, assimilating and living out in, like, Topeka, Kansas? <laughs> the short answer is that all mutants are welcome on Krakoa. Okay. And that uh, Krakoa is large enough to, to house the mutants that are alive at the time you got to think that even though uh, we'll we'll probably go through this at some point when i get some i convince somebody to read like probably 12 issues like i um for reading house of m mm. um the house of m event ended in the decimation event where Man, I, only a i think i read about half what? of it yeah house of m i loved the what followed after it, i didn't love the decimation event reduced the, the mutant population down to 198 mutants um thanks to scarlet witch and it took them a long time to build up that population to a, a degree, but there was it, it. She basically stopped new mutants being born, mm. and they didn't fix that for years. Um, there's a, a great run called Messiah Complex that is the the fixer of that. It's the, the 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 first new mutant baby is born, and Cable goes and saves her. Her name is Hope, um, and it's great. And so there's not a there's not a hundred million mutants living on Krakoa. But they all are welcome, and some are still living out in the world. Some are stuck out in the world, like Russia doesn't allow them to leave because mm. um, they're kind of the big villain country. But all are welcome to come and live on Krakoa. So, yes. Are they still, like, is Xavier still, like, looking for mutants uh, uh, as they discover their powers and, like, going and, and getting them and, like, bringing them to Krakoa? Or Yeah, there are certain teams that are tasked with helping with that. Okay. Um, the, uh, Kitty Pride actually... Uh, runs uh, she had a comic called the marauders where they not only were there to try and control the black market of the pharmaceutical products that they create on Krakoa that are the reason why they were recognized as a valid nation by the united nations i'm just running through this um but she also they went out and they saved mutants who were not able to get to Krakoa okay and good 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 you know kind of smuggled them into the island i'm glad that they still got that operation going i would hate for them to 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 uh, to stop doing that uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They still went out and saved mutants, and still, and still putting in the hours. They were, I appreciate that. Yeah, they they <laughs> they put in the hours. They put in the hours. They're doing their job. They, they clock in. Uh, okay. Well, John, I have to say, um, I I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm Great. glad that you're doing this podcast because if I'm being honest with you, that's too much information about the X Men to contain in your brain and not share on a global <laughs> scale. <laughs> you know? well i've i've said this several times the origin story of this podcast was that i have loved x-men since i was seven years old but i have never ever had an x-men fan that was m- friend never had an x-men friend that read as much as i did and was able to talk with me about this stuff so i m- made a show where i make friends talk to me about x-men they don't have to know what x-men are but we're going to talk about it and um yeah, uh, it's it's been bubbling inside of my brain for 30 years, and I'm glad to finally let a little bit of it out. A uh, little, uh, you heard it here. Uh, John has a pretty intense, pretty clear vision. I think we're all on board for it, but you know, just watch out for people with visions, <laughs> strong visions. That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, uh, f- keep an eye on me. Keep an eye on me. All future guests, just watch out. Yeah.
I've got, I've got, I've got big plans, Jeff. I've got big plans. <laughs> well, Jeff, um, I so much appreciate you taking time with this. You're, you're a very busy man. You have, you have plenty of other projects you're working on. Um, I, I, this is the only time I'll swear it in this episode. You need to go listen to Jeff's other shows face and uh, maybe I'll even get the bleep in there. Yeah, well, you should because this is a family-friendly podcast that I definitely <laughs> didn't curse on throughout the whole thing. So for you, for you to it. do it at the end is just ugh. I I I'm you know I bet you the bleeps in there. Um, but also check out his other show, Anma. Um, it's a great uh, uh, nostalgic podcast about uh, Austin <laughs> about old and, people uh, getting older. Yep. Um, but uh, again this has been so fun. I love having somebody on here who has some, you know, prior knowledge to X-Men, but still is confused by all heck about these confusing and <laughs> convoluted stories. Um, so then I get to still, I get to still be like the know-it-all is like, well, listen, so this is what happened with apocalypse before this event, that kind of thing. Um, strokes my ego a little bit, I suppose. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, as somebody who, uh, at one time considered myself a, a repository of great X-Men knowledge, uh, uh, I am, uh, in awe of, your understanding of this universe and your ability to rattle off different storylines, uh, like ad nauseum. Like I, I think you could go. I, I think you. If I sat down and I just said name X Men storylines, go. I wonder how long we would be sitting here. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. At, we'll do that at some point fun for game uh, like <laughs> episode one hundred. There you go. Yeah. Well. I will let you go. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much, y'all, for listening. I appreciate you, and I hope to see you guys next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye.